Well, good morning again, everyone. If you have your Bibles, we are in the book of Philippians. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 21 through 30. If you need a Bible, Stuart and Mike have Bible in their hands. Just raise your hand and they'll bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 30 this morning. Apostle Paul writing to the Philippians. He starts off in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. The time I study this morning is living in the light of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to gather together, to be in this place, Lord, where You've called us to be. Lord, you have a desire to speak to our hearts, each one of us personally, Lord, and as a church as a whole. And uh, Lord, we thank you that we can hear from you today. Lord, help us to have ears to receive all that you have for us. Lord, to be open, to be attentive to your word. And Father, we pray if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to come into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, or yet to be born again, to have their sin forgiven. Lord, would you especially touch them this morning? So we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, how powerful it is, Lord. We uh, believe, Lord, that it will not return void, but it will do the work that it's set out to do. And we thank you for that ahead of time and give you all the glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see three things. Number one, a passion. Number two, a problem. And number three, a purpose. First, a passion. And to get to that, I want to read you excerpts from a dog's diary to begin with. 8 a.m. Oh boy, dog ride, my favorite. Dog ride, dog food, my favorite, sorry. 9.30 a.m. Oh boy, a car ride, my favorite. 9.40. Oh boy, a walk, my favorite. 10.30 a.m. Oh boy, a car ride, my favorite. 11.30 a.m. Oh boy, dog food, my favorite. 12 noon, oh boy, the kids, my favorite. 1 p.m., oh boy, the yard, my favorite. 1.30 p.m., ooh, bath, bummer. 4 o'clock p.m., oh boy, the kids, my favorite. 5 o'clock p.m., oh boy, dog food, my favorite. 5.30 p.m., oh boy, mom, my favorite. Now I want to read to you excerpts from a cat's diary. Day 7.52. My captors continue to taunt me with bizarre little dangling objects. They dine lavishly on fresh meat while I'm forced to eat dry cereal. 
The only thing that keeps me going is the hope of escape and the mild satisfaction I get from running, ruining the occasional piece of furniture. Tomorrow I may eat another houseplant. Day 761. Today my attempt to kill my captors by weaving around their feet while they were walking almost succeeded. Must try this at the top of the stairs. Day 763. In an attempt to disgust and repulse these vile oppressors, I once again induced myself to vomit on their favorite chair. Must try this on their bed. Day 765. Decapitated a mouse and brought them the headless body in an attempt to make them aware of what I am capable of and to try to strike fear into their hearts. They only cooed and condescended about what a good little cat I was. Hmm, not working according to plan. Day 768. I'm finally aware of how sadistic they are. For no good reason, I was chosen for the water torture. This time, however, it included a burning, foaming chemical called shampoo. What sick minds could have meant such a liquid? My only consolation is a piece of thumb still stuck between my teeth. <laughs> Last one, day 774. I am convinced the other captives are flunkies and maybe snitches. The dog is routinely released and seems more than happy to return. He is obviously a half-wit. The bird, on the other hand, has got, a, got to be an informant and speaks with them regularly. I am certain he reports on my every move. Due to his current placement in the metal room, his safety is assured. But I can wait. It's only a matter of time. See, everybody lives for something. What do you live for? What do you get out of bed for in the morning? Besides Starbucks coffee... What are you passionate about? All of us live for something. If you were to sum up your life with one phrase about what you actually live for, what would it be? Now, there are those that have no aim, they have no goal, and, and, and they really just confirm the saying, if you aim at nothing, you're bound to hit it. But that was not the Apostle Paul. Paul, in verse 21 here, clearly tells us what he is passionate about, what he lived for, and indeed what all of us believers should live for as well. He starts off in verse 21 Plain, simple, very clear. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now you might say, well, that's the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was like the spiritual giant. I don't know how practical that is for me. But you see, if we're living in light of eternity, we're going to be just as passionate as Paul was. I'm sure you've heard the statement, well, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. But I would say for the most part, most are so earthly minded that they're no heavenly good. The reality is that those who have been the most heavenly minded have actually been those that have, have, have uh, accomplished the most earthly good. If you look through all of, of history, those that have done the most for the world have been those that have thought more of the next world to come. I mean, look at our own country. Some of the great universities that are here today were started as Bible believing, by Bible-believing Christians with the intent of not only educating people, but also teaching about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It might surprise you to know that Harvard and Yale and Princeton all had solid evangelical beginnings. Harvard's college's first president and tutors insisted that there could be no true knowledge or wisdom without Jesus Christ. And it says that they had their passionate Christian convictions. Unless for those passionate convictions, Christian convictions, there would be no Harvard today. But it's only typical of the direction that many Christians have had, to, had throughout history whose eyes and focus were on heaven. 
but wanted to make an impact on our culture on this earth. You know, it's Christians that have started hospitals, Christians starting uh, shelters, Christians reaching out to those that are hurting in our world today with the gospel of Christ, not only preaching to them, but also clothing people and feeding them and taking care of their needs. Even today, when problems develop in our world, somewhere in the world, be it an earthquake, a typhoon, or, or some famine or crisis that breaks out, usually it's Christian organizations that are leading the way. Organizations like the Samaritan's Purse, powerful, uh, used by the Lord, or a convoy of hope, you know, uh, uh, Christian churches that come together, they send help. You know, they're, they're actively involved in helping people. Compassion International, you know, they had 49 kids that were sponsored by the, the, the Woman of Joy Conference a week ago down in Branson, ministering to kids in poverty. Convoy of Hope, we're going to have that, that outreach on May 7th to reach out to our community. You see, it's a Christian that, that taking that step because the truth is, if you're truly heavenly minded, you're going to be of great earthly good. So Paul's passion was to live for Christ. And I would say that if you have that same passion today, we could impact our culture as well as it's much more effectively today. Now, the reason we need to think about this is because I said all of us live for something. There, there, there are those, some people that don't say what they live for with their words, but by their actions, you know what they live for. You know, they live for pleasure or they live for fun. Or they live for the weekend. They live for this sport or this hobby or this thing that they love to be involved with. You know, a lot of people are very passionate about sports. You know, it's baseball season. Man, I, I live for baseball. And they can quote every stat on every player and every team in, in the league. Because that's what they're into. You're, you're passionate about that sport. Maybe you're passionate not about normal sports. Maybe you're passionate about maybe uh, sports that push the envelope a little bit. So you go to those extreme sports. I don't know if you've ever seen these guys, but they, uh, the guys that snowboard down these huge mountains without snow in the middle of summer, you know, they're hitting these rocks and they're wiping out and they're rolling down and they're getting all bloodied up and they're, man, that was great, man, dude, that was awesome. No, you're an idiot, okay? It's crazy. But it's an extreme sport where you're looking for something more than, than just baseball. Maybe to this guy, to live is to slide down a mountain on a skateboard without wheels. I don't know. Then you have those that are just living for sinful pleasures. Maybe immorality. Some of the things that they try to derive pleasure from. But the Bible warns if you do that, you'll pay a price for it. Because the Bible does say that sin is pleasurable for a season. But afterwards, it brings death. And the scriptures warn if you live for pleasure, you're actually dead while you're, you're living. Well, another person may say, well, I don't live for pleasure. I live to acquire possessions. You know, he who dies with the most toys wins. And the idea is, well, you get more stuff. King Solomon, he knew all about that. And this, this is a guy who was, uh, had incredible wealth, wrote about it in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verse 10. And he said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Whatever he wanted, he could have. But then he went on to say in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 11, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. See, that too is an empty pursuit. Now, someone may say, well, I'm not just in the living or the pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of possessions. For me, I would say to live is to acquire knowledge. To live is to get a good education. To live to expand your mind. And certainly that's a more noble pursuit compared to the other things you've looked at. It's good to pursue knowledge. It's good to get a, a fine education. But in the process of doing that, if you leave God out, it's going to be empty. It's going to be an empty pursuit leading to a dead end. Again, Solomon quotes that. 
uh, we talked about that in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 16 and 18, where he says this, Look, I have attained greatness, and I've gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind, for much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Again, speaking in context, Solomon is commenting on the fact that to pursue knowledge without God is empty. It's an empty search. Let me add one more thing. You can be actively involved in ministry. You can be coming to church every single week, going to your midweek studies, men's studies, women's studies, and still lose sight of the main objective. Because if you're honest, you might accurately sum up your life by saying, you know, for me to live is service. Or to me, to live is ministry, or, or church, or, or that ministry. And you can still leave Christ out of that aspect of your life. Paul says, no, for me to live is Christ. Every aspect about his life was devoted to Jesus Christ. Our focus is on him, to live as Christ, live in light of eternity. But then, Paul adds, to die is gain. Listen, only the man or the woman that can say to live as Christ can say to die is gain. Now, a lot of people, they're very uncomfortable when you get to the subject of death. They don't like to deal with it. We don't like to talk about it. It's like what Woody Allen once said. It's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. People, they don't want to talk about death and dying because in reality, they don't really believe they're going to die, even though, and they live as though they won't. But when your time is up, your time is up. Paul could say to die is gain because he recognized that he would be with Christ one day. He was certain beyond a doubt that his life would continue on. So he lived in light of eternity. But he has a problem. And that's point number two, a problem. Look at verse 22. He says, But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. That word for desire there, it's actually strong desire. It's used almost in the same way that we use the word lust for. Paul is saying, I have this problem. I have such a driving, strong, compelling desire to depart and be with Christ. But if I continue on this earth, I know that just means more fruit. But I also know if I depart to be with Christ, it's so much better. I can't decide what to choose. Now, Paul saying that he has the desire to depart shows us Paul's view on death. It's not a death wish. It's a departure. Listen, Paul had people wanting to kill him many times. One time he was lowered in a basket to escape his death. Another time he heard they wanted to stone him, and, and he left the city. It wasn't Paul would say, man, I'm ready to die. Stone me, kill me, let's, let's go. No, he, he was ready to depart, is what we see here. In fact, that Greek word that Paul uses for depart in verse 23 is the word analuo, and it was used three different ways back during this time. Number one, it was used for breaking camp. In other words, pulling up the, ta- the, the tent stakes and moving on. See, we're, we're pilgrims here on this earth. We're on the move. We're camping out right now on this earth. It's temporary. Now, let me say, I'm not a big fan of camping. Okay, there you have it. Because when you attempt to make a temporary sleeping place outside, you, you still try to have all those comforts at home. I mean, you spend hours setting up camp, right? Or you got the portable table, so it's just like your table at home. Oh, yeah, it's great. You get the portable generator, so it's just like having electricity at home. 
You get to blow up mattress so it's just as good as your bed at home. Well, you might, stay, might as well stay at home and make it just as good as camping. Forget all the work. But here we are in our campground. We're in our tents. But you know what? You don't want to live like that forever. It's not easy to stay in a tent for a long time. After a while, you start missing things like deodorant, you know, and running water and showers and real food. It's time to break tent and to move on. It's interesting to me that the Bible on on more than one occasion compares our bodies as tents. And really, it's a good comparison because tents are temporary residences. You know, I get up and I look at my tent in the mirror and I see it's changed over the years. Man, the top of my tent is getting really thin. And it's faded. It's changing colors. A little old, a little bit weathered. But here's the good news. 2 Corinthians 5.1 For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now here's the thing. In our culture, we're preoccupied with the tent. Paul said back in verse 20 that he wanted to magnify God with his body. Today, we want to magnify our bodies. We want to do everything we can to preserve the tent. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with taking care of our bodies. As J. Vernon McGee would say, when it comes to women wearing makeup, if the bar needs painting, paint it. He said that. I didn't say that. I'm just reporting what he said. Yeah, we want our bodies to be in good shape. We want them to look as good as they can. But, but, but understand, we are all going to depart one day. We're going to leave this tent. So let's not get fixated on the tent. Number two, the word for depart in verse 25 was also used for untying a boat from its moorings, setting sail, and sailing away. In fact, Paul in his last letter to Timothy in, in uh, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he said that his departure was at hand. Same Greek word, analuo. In fact, Paul was saying that he's getting ready to set sail. He's getting ready to, 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 to leave this earth, to depart. Now listen, you can only say you're ready to depart if you know your destination, if you know where you're going to. I mean, let's say you go down to, to, the, to, the, to the docks, okay? And now instead of, uh, I mean, and, and now you're waving goodbye rather to a friend. Let's, let's call him John. And you're waving goodbye to John. He's in the military. John is about to be shipped off to the Middle East and eventually to Afghanistan. Now, as you're waving goodbye, you're thinking, oh, man, I feel so sorry for John. Man, it's going to be so tough there. But let's, let's change it around a little bit. Let's say John was now on leave, and now instead of a warship that he left on, it's now the Carnival Cruise Lines. And then John, he's going to go on a cruise to the Bahamas. And now you're standing on that same dock waving to John, but this time, it's not, oh, poor John, it's, oh, poor me. Man, I wish I could be going with him. This would be so cool. That's the picture that Paul is painting for us here. He's saying, I'm going to a better place, a place called heaven. I'm ready to depart to heaven. Heard of a story about a pastor who was preaching about going to heaven in which he said, how many of you would like to go to heaven? Everybody's hands went up except one little boy sitting in the back. So the pastor again asked, how many of you would like to go to heaven? Again, all the hands shot up again except for that little boy in the back, even more determined not to raise his hand. So the pastor looked at the boy and said, son, don't you want to go to heaven? The boy replied, yeah, someday, but I thought you were getting ready to leave right now. Paul says, I'm ready to depart right now. Then the third way that word depart is used, it was used in removing a yoke. 
A yoke was a wooden beam normally used between a pair of oxen or other animals to enable them to pull together a load when working together in pairs. So when that work was done for the day, the farmer would remove the yoke that sat on their shoulders. He would analuo the yoke, depart the yoke. In other words, remove the burden. No more service. It's over. Listen, there's going to come a day, and I believe very soon, when the burden of this life is going to be lifted. The struggle with sin is going to be removed. When on that day, Jesus is going to look at us and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. See, that's how Paul viewed his death. That's what Paul wanted. He said, I have this desire to depart. Death would be a departure. Now, here's the best part. Not just depart, but Paul says, having a desire to be with Christ, which is far better. See, that's the best part. Because when you love somebody a lot, you want to be with that person. You want to be in their presence. And that's what makes death for the believer uh, so sweet. It isn't the departure, it's the arrival. Paul isn't saying, man, I just want to die. No, he's saying, I want to see Jesus. To be in His presence. To be forever in heaven. Let's talk about heaven for a little bit. So you can kind of get a glimpse of what Paul is thinking of. Many times when we think of heaven, we think of streets made out of gold. And we think of pearly gates. And we think of heavenly hosts of angels singing. Now, I admit, I never really thought of heaven that way. And it's probably because of the way I was raised when I was about three years old. Almost four in October of 1962, my dad went through open heart surgery. The Lord chose to take him home to heaven. But I remember my mom getting us up in the morning, the day after the surgery, not knowing what happened. And she gathered all six of us kids around her. And she told us, she says, Daddy's home in heaven now. 26 years later, my mom would enter heaven. I I tell you, that changes your idea about heaven. See, listen, the greatest thing about heaven is not what's there, but who's there. Who's there? You see, the moment you depart from this earth, the first thing you encounter, according to God's word, is the glory and the face of God. As soon as you get there, it's going to be immediate access face-to-face with the Lord. In fact, we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are confident yet rather well-pleased to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There's no soul sleep when you die. When you die, you don't go into some intermittent state where there's a lack of consciousness and your soul is in this holding chamber. There's immediate access to God. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Now understand that means our bodies have to go undergo some changes because they can't go to heaven in its tattered old tent that we're in. In fact, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15.50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So there needs to be a change that takes place. We need a body designed for heaven. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. So shall we all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption And this mortal must put on immortality. So then, what will these new bodies look like? Well, we don't really know. Only that it will be somehow related to your present existing body. In other words, the blueprint for your glorified body is in the body that you now possess. It's already there. There's going to be a connection between, you know, the Tom of earth and the Tom of heaven. uh, And that's the same true for all of us. 
Because Job says, in my flesh, I will see God. And that means that in some way, our, our bodies, uh, you know, in some way be the same as our old bodies, but at the same time, they're going to be different. They're going to be radically improved. No more physical disabilities, no more signs of age, no more sinful tendencies. And we know our resurrected bodies will also resemble uh, the body of Jesus after his resurrection. Remember when Jesus was crucified and he rose again from the dead three days later? And we know that after the resurrection, I mean, he, he was physical. You could, you could touch him. And he could appear in a room and then suddenly disappear in the room and then be walking down this road to a maze, talking to two disciples, and suddenly appear back in the room talking to Thomas. Now, don't you wonder, man, are we going to be able to do those same things? Well, listen to what, what the Bible says in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we'll be like him. That'll be so cool. Suddenly appear in one place and then disappear. I think I'm going to go over to Hawaii. <laughs> I'm there. Instantly from one place to another. You know, people come up with all sorts of questions about, about heaven. Strange questions. You know, well, will there be football in heaven? Will my pet be in heaven? Do you really want them there? I mean, Really? Do you really want to be cleaning up after your pet forever in heaven? I mean, ladies, do you really want football in heaven? You know, people ask, well, will I know my loved ones or friends in heaven? Will we recognize one another in heaven? The short answer is absolutely yes. Why would you think that you would know less in heaven than you know on earth? In heaven, we're, we're perfected. We're glorified. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. So if we know our friends, we know our families on earth now, we are not going to suddenly get dumb and dumber in heaven. I shall know even also as I am known. There will be no more mysteries, no more questions. Everything will be resolved. You'll know things when when they're in heaven. You'll still love your family. You'll still love your friends. In fact, to me, it's going to be a sweeter and more purer love because there's no more break in your love. There's no more separation. Death breaks ties on earth, but it renews them in heaven. And we'll be the same people in heaven that we were on earth. You don't become a, a different person. It'll still be me, only that, again, the perfected version without any flaws, without any shortcomings, without any sinful tendencies. A new glorified body designed to be in the presence of God forever. How cool is that going to be? One more thing people want to know. The most important question about heaven. Will we eat in heaven? Absolutely, we are going to eat. How many of you like to eat? Just raise your hand. You like to eat. Okay, good, good. How many of you don't like to eat? Okay, get out. All right. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. We are going to eat in heaven. Remember, Jesus ate fish that he cooked on the shore there with his disciples in his glorified body. Not only that, Revelation 19.9, an angel said to the Apostle John, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Revelation 19.9. Supper means food. We're going to have supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to be with Jesus Christ around that table enjoying a feast. And boy, we're going to be satisfied. In fact, when it comes to heaven, listen to what the psalmist writes. Psalm 17.15. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Boy, doesn't that just put it all together? I love that. 
You'll be satisfied, completely satisfied. When you're in heaven, you won't be distracted by anything else going on. You won't need music to worship. Just worship. You won't need to listen to me preach anymore. Isn't that great? No more sermons. I mean, you're face to face with God. See, the main event of heaven is not going to be seeing our loved ones, our new bodies, or the fact that we can eat. The main event in heaven is going to be Jesus. See, we long for heaven, but what we really long for is is for God himself. That's what we long for. D.L. Moody wrote this, and I quote, It's not the jeweled walls and the pearly gates that are going to make heaven attractive. It is being with God. God will be there. You can ask him anything. You can tell him anything and, and hear everything that he has for you to, has to say to you. You'll have all the time in the world when you go to heaven. It's our future home. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. But I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. I will come again and receive you myself that where I am, you may be also. That's what we desire, to finally be at that place that we so long for. Thursday, December 21st, 1899, after cutting short a Kansas City crusade and returning home in ill health, D.L. Moody told his family, I'm not discouraged. I want to live as long as I am useful, but when my work is done, I want to be up and off. The next day, Moody awakened after a restless night. In careful, measured words, he said, Earth recedes, heaven opens before me. Well, his son, Will, concluded his father was dreaming, to which he is father said no this is no dream well it is beautiful it is like a trance if this is death it is sweet there is no valley here god is calling me and i must go another great preacher dr f b meyer wrote a very dear friend these words a few days before his death he wrote i have just heard to my great surprise that i have but a few days to live it may be that before this reaches you i shall have entered the palace don't trouble to write we shall meet in the morning I've entered the palace. Don't trouble to write. That's why Paul says, I have a problem in verse 23. I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Do you understand Paul's dilemma now after looking at heaven, after having a glimpse of heaven? Oh, to be with Christ is far better. Or literally in the Greek, it says to, it's much more better. See, that's not good English. No, but it's good theology. I think when Paul was taken up into heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, he said it was so incredible that to try to describe it would be a crime. Things that are unlawful for man to utter, things I cannot describe to you. He was with the Lord. It was indescribable. It was far better. That's how we need to answer people when they ask us how we're going to look when we get to heaven. Far, far better, period. So it's a departure, it's an encounter, and it's far better. But Paul's problem is that he doesn't know what's better for him. God has not revealed to him what he should do. I'm sure Paul, you know, being with Christ was much better than being in that prison cell that he sat in. And this brings us to our third point, progress. Paul was willing to, to remain, to stay behind for the progress of their faith. Look at verses 24 through 26. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming again to you. As much as Paul desired to go home to be with the Lord, 
he knew that his work on earth was not yet done. And Paul struggled with, with what he wanted versus what they needed. And yet he comes to this conclusion that he's willing to give up what he wants in order that they can progress in their faith. And it's a key word there in verse 25, progress. Paul says, I know that if I stick around, it's going to be progress. Now, progress is is a a military term that literally means to advance to the next place. Paul is saying that that he's decided to push his will out of the way in order that they might uh, he might serve them to help them advance to a better place, a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. You know what that tells me? That's a mark of a spiritual person. Basically, Paul is saying it's not what I really want. I've come to serve. Uh, I've come to serve, and as long as I can serve these Philippians and this church as at large, then forget what I want. It doesn't matter. In fact, Paul was willing to do more than that. Romans chapter nine, verse one through three. Write it down. In the New Living Translation, Paul writes this, With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Whoa. He's willing to postpone going to heaven in order to help these Christians in Philippi grow. He's willing to go to hell in order to win the loss to Christ. Wow. Understand, Paul isn't bitter about this. He doesn't say to the church in Philippi, man, I could be going to heaven and I could be in a new body and I could have no more pain and no more suffering. I could be with Jesus forever, face to face throughout eternity. But no! No, I gotta stay here and babysit you guys. You weaklings. I'll stay. Not at all. Look at verse 26. Paul says, I wanna stick around, he says, and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. In other words, what Paul is saying is, is if I stick around, it's gonna be mutually beneficial. You can't wait to see me. I can't wait to see you. And being here, man, we're both going to grow closer to Jesus together. You know, this is the great thing that happens here at Calvary also. I can't wait for Sunday mornings. I tell you, to be honest, I can't wait for Wednesday nights. I love it when we get together. That's why on Wednesday nights, we're here till sometimes 10, 11 o'clock at night. So I don't want to go home, man. We're together. Why? Because I love growing closer to Jesus Christ together. And I hope you do too where you can say, man, I can't wait to hear what God has to say to me through Tom. And and, and I can say, man, I can't wait to share with you what God has said to me to the folks here at Calvary. It's that joy that Paul is speaking of here about being together and sharing and growing together. We're excited. That Paul goes on in Thessalonians, in his letter to the Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, that he was so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives because you have become so dear to us. Their closeness was there. See, all that to say, when we come together, it's for the same reason. It's to progress in our faith. It's to grow in our grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our, our final verses, verses 27 through 30. Knowing these things about heaven, about how important it is to keep our eyes on eternity, while we're still ministering and caring for the needs of others here on this earth, knowing these things, Paul writes now in verse 27, he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, 
that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Three words pop out in these verses that we'll look at and then we'll close. Conduct, character, and conflict. Conduct, number one. Look at verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The way you live, the things that you do, why we wait to go home, be with the Lord. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word worthy, you can write next to it, appropriate, deserving, comparable. See, Jesus Christ gave his life for you. He was worthy to take the scroll. He alone is holy. Now we conduct our lives in the same manner, holy, set apart for the Lord. Now we know we're not worthy, but that doesn't change the fact in how we're to conduct ourselves. We're to live as Christ. That's our conduct. Number two, our character. Again, verse 27, he says, stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So standing fast means to, to stand strong. It means to stand stationary. It's a military term to stand at attention, to be immovable towards one's cause. So living for Christ is a body of believers with one mind, one purpose, one focus, glorifying God with our lives. Then the final word is conflict. Verse 29, he says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. A Greek word conflict is agon, from where we get our word agony. So Paul is saying that don't be blown away. Don't be taken aback. Don't fall down because you're going through attacks and difficulties. Don't lose sight because you're suffering. It only proves three things. Number one, suffering proves that you're a child of God. Number two, it's a privilege to suffer on behalf of Christ. But number three, it's going to just make you all the more long for heaven. Does it not? Is that not what the same conflict that Paul was going through in his life? He says, the same thing I'm going through, you're going to be going through it. To desire to depart and be in heaven with Jesus for eternity or to stay here on this earth and continue to be used by Him to bring Him glory. See, if your aim is to live for Christ, live in light of eternity, and you know that if you die, it's gain, it's heaven, then as you live for Christ, it will be a life filled with joy. It will be a life of peace. And then when death comes, it's gain. It's the hope of heaven. So let me ask you this question this morning. What do you live for? If it's money, when you die, you're going to leave it all behind. If it's, if it's fame, when you die, man, you're going to be forgotten. If, if it's power, man, when you die, you'll lose all of that. But if you say, for me to live is Christ, then you can say to die is gain. Now, this is not some feel-good, prideful religiosity. This is a life-changing New Testament Christianity. This is what God wants for all of us, to live in light of eternity. So let me ask you as we close, are you ready? Are you ready for heaven? Somebody going, oh man, you don't know how ready I am. Listen, heaven is prepared. It's a prepared place for prepared people. Let me say that again. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. If I'm going to take a trip, I have to book a ticket. You know, I just can't walk up and, and board a plane. I have to have a ticket. In the same way, if you want to go to heaven and make sure you're going to heaven, you need a ticket. So how much does it cost? Well, you can't afford it. Okay, you just can't afford it. But the good news is Jesus Christ came to this earth 
and died on the cross for your sin and rose again from the dead. And in effect, he purchased your ticket for eternal life. And here's how you receive it. Say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I accept that free gift offer that you've given to me. And I put my faith and trust in you. And you have that ticket. Have you done that yet? Because listen, this is so important. You don't know when your life is going to be over. None of us know. We don't know. We, we think that we're going to live long lives, and, and some of us will. And quite frankly, some of us will not. So we need to be ready. The Bible tells us, prepare to meet your God. Be ready. And you know what? If you're prepared and the Lord gives you many years, great. You live for, for His glory. If He doesn't give you as many years as you hope for, that's fine because why? You're already living for His glory. The point is, you're prepared. You're ready. But this is not something you put off. So here's what I, how I want to close this morning. I want you to be absolutely certain this morning that if you were to die, you would go to heaven, that you'd be ready. And so because of that, I want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. We see the struggle that Paul faces, hope for heaven, and how wonderful it would be but his desire to minister to the folks that were here left on this earth. And I know we as believers, we we struggle with the same thing, Lord. We long to be with you, but Lord, we know there are many people that don't know you and need a relationship with you. And so we pray, Father, that we would have hearts to serve, hearts to reach out to those that while we wait to depart, Lord, that we would see lives changed. And finally, Father, we pray if there's anyone here that is not ready for heaven, but they want to be, Lord, perhaps you've spoken to their hearts this morning and they see their need to turn to you and turn from their sin. They've seen what you have in store for them. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not have this relationship with you, that they would make that decision now, not wait any longer. Today is a day of salvation. Now is a time of salvation. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to commit your life to Him. You want your sin forgiven. You want to be born again this morning. You want to know that if you were to die, you were going to go to heaven. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. And you're saying, Jesus, I want to make my commitment to you. I want to accept the fact that you died for me. And my sin can be forgiven. If that's your desire, raise your hand so I could pray for you. Anybody at all. Maybe at one point you committed your life to Jesus Christ, but you've walked away from Him and you're, you're not prepared to meet Him because you haven't been living for Him. But this morning God has spoken to your heart and you see you need to rededicate your life to Him and to start serving Him again as, you, again as you once did, to return to that first love relationship with Him. Is that your desire? You want to rededicate your life to the Lord? Would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? God bless you and you in the back. Anybody else? Again, this is just between you and the Lord. God bless you. Over and aside. God loves you so much. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, for those of you that, that want to rededicate your life to the Lord, just repeat this prayer after me. God, I'm once again sorry for my sin. I repent of it. Lord, again, I thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for me and forgiving me of every sin I've ever committed. Jesus, I rededicate my life to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Empower me to live for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Praise the Lord. Let's all stand and we'll do one final song together.